Welcome to Live with Greg or Live with Greg, depending on semantics. <laughs> All right, while we're on, Deborah. All right, Greg. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you for the invitation. It took a little bit convincing, but uh, I'm glad to be here. All right. So I'm interested in your experience with educating liberal white people. <laughs> <laughs> Important to make that distinction, right? I think so, especially as you've mentioned where we live. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot for me to say, um, and I think uh, as a native New Yorker, so another liberal, progressive space, uh, that's where I grew up, um, this whole conversation about race, I've lived a lifetime, right? And so now, this is the work I do professionally. So there's my personal experience, which I hope to share, I will share, and then my professional experience, uh, having conversations about race in San Francisco, the Bay Area, and Marin. And when you think about, you were to ask, you know, your listeners or your viewers where the most segregated school district would be, oftentimes the response to that is in the South. And in actuality, it's New York City Public Schools. Huh. It's the most segregated, racially really? segregated school district in the country. More so than in California. The most, with over a million students in New York City Public Schools. Wow. Right. And so there's a belief that in liberal progressive spaces that we have race figured out. And that belief stands in the way of the openness and the receptivity to really examine that. And so there's a belief that race in the South, because we know that, us Northerners, like we know race in the South is problematic. We've had a problematic history, there's a legacy, but we're in the North. We're on the coasts. We're in these liberal spaces. We're good. And when that belief takes over, then the openness, the willingness um, to question, to examine, pretty much gets diminished. Right? And so if I don't believe there's an issue, then where's my capacity to learn, to grow, and to unlearn? So the work that I have to do or need to do in these specific spaces is different than the work that I've done in the South, right? It's a very different dynamic. And in one of my very first consultancy um, assignments was Little Rock, Arkansas, in the school district. Little Rock 9, desegregation, Central High School. You know, there's a long history there. That was a very different experience than being in charge of special ed in San Francisco Unified School District and seeing how race was playing out in special education in such a liberal, progressive city. And uh, I got a whole other education for myself within special ed and seeing how a disability, if you're white, and in some cases, in many cases, Asian in San Francisco, really led to a whole other uh, path than if you were black, if you were uh, uh, English, learning English, and if you were brown, uh, in San Francisco Unified. Completely different paths. Are those two paths that a white person would receive an IED, is that the right term? An IEP. IEP, mm -hmm. and therefore be supported on a track to college 
and a person of color would be seen more as not mentally capable and marginalized. So all are required to have an IEP once you are, you know, all are required if you are assessed and found eligible. So the students all have IEPs, IEPs as individual education plans. Not a bad idea and concept. The choices made, the label, the determination of the label, right? Let's just take autism for an example, because that's when I came into being in charge of special ed in 2000, autism was just becoming into our consciousness. Like it's 21 years ago now. So I had to create programs for children with autism in charge of San Francisco Unified School District Special Ed. So from scratch, created these programs so that you know, we would have a pathway for students who were found to be eligible for autism or on the spectrum of um, the autism spectrum, but also Asperger's, which manifests differently. So all that to say is build those programs out. We also had programs for students with emotional disturbance. Now guess which children racially were tracked into those programs under special ed? Black children. Absolutely. And so access to general education, right? Access to higher um, course, course options or uh, accommodations, modifications, support, which was what special ed is supposed to provide, were much more robust for students and that kind of pathway. And then I noticed, and everybody, it was so normalized, race is so normalized, and this nexus of race and disability is so normalized that these classrooms were filled across the school district, and it's not just San Francisco, it's really across the country, because I've subsequently done this work, um, with brown and black children in segregated, self-contained classrooms uh, with very little access to be mainstreamed or integrated into general ed. So I'm saying all this to say, to, to fast forward to now, is I got an education coming to San Francisco almost 30 years ago, right? And being in the special ed field, seeing how race was invisible in special ed. It was always under the guise of disability. And folks were just not seeing how race was impacting. Now this fast now this isn't 2000 so fast forward conversation about race and special ed is more front and center as it needs to be. But what I'm saying is between my personal experience with race and how I was, you know, who I am racially, how I was, uh, you know, raised, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and my professional experience has led me to where I am today, which is how we met right. because you were on one of my sessions. And so um, this work is very personal for me. You know, I, for your listeners and subsequently your viewers, uh, I'm biracial, right? I don't identify as biracial now, but that's a journey. I identify as black. However, my mom is white and my father is black. And when they met at college, it was illegal for their union because interracial marriages were illegal federally up until until 10 years after they met, 10 or more after year, years after they met. So they met married. Uh, my mother's white family disowned my mother. Uh, I met my grandparents on my mother's side maybe twice in my life. They weren't a part of my life. She was disowned. You know, this is, this is race. This is how race, this is how we live race. And even though it was in the 1950s, um, there's still ramifications of that today. And so it was my black family, my grandmother, my aunties, my uncle, my cousins, my black cousins, 
that's that's the family that I grew up with and and, and met and was around. And when um, yeah, my mother and father married, he got kicked out of the university. And so it was um, my grandmother that took my parents in, my black grandmother. And um, this is in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, New York. Black Brooklyn, to be clear. <laughs> and that's where I was born. And um, so my experiences racially, I, you know, the, the brownstone that my grandmother lived in was across the street from a black church. The neighbors were black. You know, my cousins and uh, everyone around was black. That's the experience racially that I was brought up into. Now, I started becoming very aware of race, I believe, at an early age. Confused by it, but aware of it. And when I started school, it was not in Brooklyn, it was, but it was another black neighborhood. So my first teachers were black. My, uh, the, the school children were black. I felt like I was where I was and, and belonged. And as our family started to grow, you know, I'm now I'm one of eight children, but as our family started to grow, we needed a bigger home. And at this time now, my father has been kicked out of that university. And he is going to night school for 10 years, part-time, to get his degree because that's the promise he made to his dying grandfather, was he was going to go back and get his degree. Um, and so it's my, so he's working during the day to support a growing family and going to school at night for 10 years. I always remember my father in school. I didn't know until recently it was to get his bachelor's. I always thought it was advanced degrees or specialization, etc. That was a recent story that was shared. Mm-hmm. And so it's my white mother that was charged with you know, finding a place for her growing family. And uh, she found a contract. Her contractor starts building her home. He's only dealing with my mother. He thinks he's building a home for a white family until he, he finds out it's a black family. But it's too late. And our family, our home gets built. I remember the day we moved in. And I remember going to school. I think I was in third grade at the time. All white teachers, all white students. It's an all white neighborhood. And so we moved from an all black neighborhood and schools to an all white neighborhood and schools. And even though my mother loved and married obviously my father and had black children, her racial consciousness was not developed enough to understand what it would be like in the 60s and 70s to send her black children to all white schools and what she would need to do to prepare us for that. The, you know, to be prepared for what are you? You know, being asked every day, what are you? Because clearly I didn't look white, but certainly not black because I'm fair-skinned. I'm a light-skinned black woman. Um, so that constant question as a child of what are you, and the confusion that that brings, and not enough conversation dialogue. My father, my black father, is a busy man, right? And so it was left to my mother to try to to prepare and to have these conversations that she was ill-equipped to have, or not not ill-equipped. No, yeah, 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 ill-equipped. I mean, I certainly remember the first time my oldest brother was going from the 
all-white middle school to the all-white high school, um, and the guidance counselor placed them in the vocational track because at that time, if you remember, we had college track and we had vocational track. And it was my white mother that was able to march down there and say to the white guidance counselor over my dead body, my black child is, is brilliant and he's going to college. But I often share, when I share my story, what would happen if my mother couldn't take off work? What? What if my father went instead? What if my mother didn't speak English? Um, what if she's a single mother and just doesn't all have of this, the time? All of, all of the above, right? right? Well, I'm clear that my brother would not be the doctor he is today. Mm. That forever changed his trajectory, right? That single decision that a white guidance counselor made about the value, the educational value of my brother forever changed his trajectory. And so my question when I'm sharing, because I always share my story when I'm leading a conversation, and mostly with educators, to what extent is that still happening today? Right? And we say it's about socioeconomics, but I know if my brother went into the vocational track, the dollar amount difference between oh, being yeah. a doctor and whatever vocation he chose is significant. Yeah. And so we can't not have this conversation about race. Yeah, and it's not even just financial, it's just social. All of it. Yeah. All of it. Respect. All of it. And so the confusion around growing up biracial, and not in all black space, because I was not confused in, in black spaces, the confusion started in white spaces. And that's race. Did your mom experience it when she moved into the black neighborhood with her grandma? She was welcomed. She was welcomed. She was, you know, I'm sure there was conversations with having in-laws, you know, and those just natural, normal things. But it's the black family that embraced her. Right. And, my, you know, embraced us. That's how we were embraced was in the black family, in the black community. It was our, you know, my mother's white family that, that took a while. Some of them did come around, and I met my uncles and, you know, cousins, and eventually over time, but it was the black community that embraced our family. And so my experience around white spaces and living race, I was just very conscious of very early on in my life. And then fast forward, I, I, right after college, like literally right after college, I left the country and moved to the, the Virgin Islands because we do have Jamaican ancestry on my father's side. I moved there with my younger sister, and it was having left the country, and I left for 13 years, having left the country, was able to really kind of reclaim my racial identity hmm. because that was the confusion I felt growing up. So I've just listened to James Baldwin's book, um, mm -hmm. Nobody Knows Me, and uh, you're echoing a lot of what I heard him saying about yeah. leaving the country. And That's right. And he's a black gay man, yeah. right? And it's just all that experience. And so for sure, it's like I had to leave the country to really move, remove myself from this, this narrative about race. And to really examine it, and of course, the West Indies is, is African, it's West Indian, it's my ancestors, right? And to reclaim uh, my racial identity, you know, but, you know, my brothers and sisters, not, it's only me and my sister that left the country. And so 
there's a whole conversation, some of the hardest conversations, and I show this when I do my sessions, are in my own family about race. Because we're the whole spectrum of lighter to darker and all that, all that that represents. And so between my personal experience growing up with race and my continuing journey around race, because that never ends, right? Special education in this nexus of race and disability. And there's a whole, there's a whole uncovering that I came about around how after Brown versus Board of Education, after we were required to uh, integrate schools, special ed became a tool to resegregate mm. under the guise of disability. And so during that time, when we were required to implement integration, then the, the whole notion of special ed diagnosis and labels started to really take hold. And so there was within school segregation. And so you had wings or basements or areas that were devoted just to special ed. And those special ed rooms are full of people of color. Children of color. Um, yeah. I have this idea that it was blatant in the South, you know, like um, Jim Crow and what you're talking about in the prison system. Blatant conscious decision making in the South. Not so in liberal areas and north areas. Well, this is, this is now we get to bring it back to present day liberal areas. So that's the misconception. And so to see how it was manifesting in a liberal space like San Francisco and seeing how it was hiding out in plain sight. And, you know, I think at the time when I was in charge of special ed, we had 120-something schools. So I was all, in all those schools. And how no one was noticing race. Like, go to school to school, being in the classroom, seeing who's there, and nobody's naming race. And I remember having conversations with my special ed colleagues at the federal level. Nobody's naming race. And nobody's seeing how this nexus of autism and emotional disturbance are creating these separate kind of segregated pathways. It's not like black children aren't, aren't um, don't have uh, autism, right? Or are uh, on the Asperger's spectrum. But they were being kind of labeled and kind of creating this divergent pathway because of race. So on a street talk, what I'm hearing is your experience as a child of color would be emotionally disturbing the class, not fit for society. A white child would be more like, oh, they have this autism spectrum. It's more of something we need to work with, whereas the child of color is a problem. We need to just take this problem out of the and environment. Remove. And remove. So emotional disturbance. I mean, just listen to that label. Right. I mean, who would want that label? And yet that label created a whole other marginalized, separated out uh, pathway for, for young people, children and young people, with that label. And so there's many labels that you can qualify under special ed, but I'm naming these two because it was the most... Uh, obvious for me in creating these programs for students with, with autism, but seeing how ch- black children were being segregated in these classrooms where they never left. If they did, it was for lunch or art or music, mm-hmm. but weren't mainstream, which they're required to be. And, and when you're 
diagnosed with an emotional disturbance, you have average to above intelligence. That is part of the disability. With autism, it's called a spectrum because you can have a cognitive impairment or be completely gifted. And yet the children that have average to above intelligence, black, brown, were the most segregated. So this was, this was all kind of my education, right? And the fight um, to make visible what was so normalized. And then as I became a consultant later on, just how that manifested all across this country, north, south, east, west, how race is normalized to the point where people don't see it. And so my work as a consultant is to help people to see it. And then once you see it, right. you can't unsee it. Now, this is all pre-George Floyd. You know, so right? So now with, with, the, with the death of George, the murder of George Floyd, why George Floyd's murder? Why? I mean, I grew up with um, um, all these killings, right? And so Rodney King, I remember that video. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't Rodney King's beating. You know, it wasn't Tamir Rice. It wasn't Oscar Grant. It wasn't Sandra Bland. It wasn't Breonna Taylor. It wasn't Oscar, you know, it wasn't Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin. It's like we can name all of these people who were killed. It wasn't their deaths. It was George Floyd's. Well, a couple things in mind, because pondering what you're saying. I uh, started um, looking at Richard Pryor videos a lot. Not Again, you know, things come in tide, so it's not new to me. But what I noticed is uh, James Baldwin, Richard Pryor, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, um, Dr. Martin Luther King all in the same period of time we're all saying the same things in essence you're killing us you know police are killing us and why am I going to trust a bunch of vipers a bunch of white people who are going to kill me like I think it's Muhammad Ali who said a million are coming down the aisles to kill me maybe a thousand and there are good but I'm going to wait here to see who the thousand are no so part of what you know like you asked why George Floyd what I find it's a conversation that's been going on probably 400 plus years ever since it really started in this country but for too many white people it just started and that's the crazy thing because and in liberal progressive spaces it's just starting and so I have to do a lot of work personally to deal with my feelings about that because I can get into my feelings so like I understand why it was George Floyd I do we were locked down yes we were life was was a lot slower not quite shut down, but a lot slower for so many Americans, um, where you kind of like you couldn't help but pay attention. But just let's go back four years to Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. You know, so when I when I lead a, an initial one of my first sessions that I typically lead is I'll show a picture of Colin kneeling, and I'll ask folks in your home, in your community, with your friends. What was that conversation like? Because people lost their minds when Colin kneeled. 
I mean, it, you remember. He lost his job. He lost his job. He to the, I mean, people, but people lost their minds that he would even kneel at a football game to protest police killings of black bodies. So I put, I put the picture up and I asked folks to just you know, reflect back to that conversation four years ago. Not everybody's always honest. And then you know, I want to know, like, what was those conversations? If you were really into football, if you weren't into football, what did you know? What did you hear? And then I post a side-by-side of George Floyd's murder with the knee on his neck. So kneeling, both. Right. And the caption and this circulated on social media, it wasn't my picture, was, which knee bothers you more? Mm-hmm. And so often the response was, well, I didn't really understand why he was kneeling. And I'm thinking, why didn't you? Like, everybody knew he was kneeling to protest police killings, but this is the refrain. And I'm talking about in the Bay Area. So let's get, I'm going to really kind of like zero in now to the Bay Area. Is, well, I didn't really understand all the reasons why he was kneeling, but yet there was such a strong response to his kneeling. Right? So how could there be this national, local and national, strong response to the kneeling and then the refrain to at least people who are willing to share? And I appreciate their honesty, right? Because this is the only way we're going to learn and grow and to unlearn um, is, well, I didn't really understand what it's about. And so it's, I have to do a lot of work, back to the point I was making, is I have to do a lot of work to really work on my emotions when I hear this. Like, how did you not know? The headlines. Because like, if you get angry, then it shuts the conversation up. Well, if I just, any nonverbal, whatever, you know, like, I, you know, I don't always have a poker face. So I have to really listen and want folks to share because that's where the opportunity lies, right? And I can get really in my feelings about this because it's like, I don't, what universe have you been able to live in? What's the willful denial that you've been operating? And I'm really talking about now collective, the Bay Area, the, the country. What is the willful denial that you've been able to operate under for so long to not hear the voices and to see what's been happening? What has allowed to have happened for so long but that to emerge and to occur and be what's so dominant. And yet, that is the reality. Pre-George Floyd, this has been... And so now, there's this awakening, this reckoning to a reality that's been in plain sight all along that it now makes it impossible for many more people not to ignore. There's still some people that are still not going to see it. They're just not there. But so many more people are seeing it for the first time. My negative thought is that we've seen these rise of consciousness, you know, with George Floyd, as you mentioned, Rodney King, there was a huge rise of consciousness. I think with the OJ trial, there's a rise of consciousness. With the civil rights of 65, the Black Panthers, it always seems to rise and then fall. And it seems like the fall has a far longer period of life than the rise. So let's be clear, the fall is, is, is for white people, right? right? So for people of color, this is every day, all day. Right. 
for white people. And this, again, you know, it's this narrative around our country and race. So the narrative in our country about race is that race is about people of color. As if you, Greg, as a white right. man, aren't living race every day. Right. And if you believe that race is about people of color and excludes you as if white people aren't living race, then I have the option, the choice to be, to be oblivious to it. Because if it's only about people of color and if I'm in the Bay Area and if I'm in Marin, which is so segregated, then I have a choice and I could be in completely in oblivion to it if I so choose. When I hear race, I think black. That's right. But let's tell I me, mean, look at all the anti-Asian sentiment that's happening now, right? I mean, the, what's happening with, uh, with white fragility, right? This is all race, but we've constructed race to be about black and brown people, not about white culture, white people, the advantage of that, living what it means to be white, what it means to um, be in white culture. That is living, Greg's, you are living race 24-7. The work is to get you to be conscious that you're living race 24-7. So that is my work with largely white participants, is to get them to understand that you've, um, you were told a story about race at some point in your life and there's a story still being told about race and how do you become conscious of what your story is about race and then you get to decide oh that's a story that needs some an update that's a story that I need to interrogate that's a story that I really need to examine do you think there's hope in consciously like one friend said to me, race isn't even real. It's a concept that was made up. It's a construct that isn't based on reality. It is not. Is there hope in that conversation and us coming to a point, okay, it isn't race. In a recent conversation with another friend, he said, it's not about equality. I was equal the day my feet hit the ground. As, you know, like When I was born, we're equal. It's not about equality. It's about respect. Well, so to, to just clarify, race biologically is not real, right? It is a social construct. Our country was built on a racial hierarchy. How else could we extract the labor mm-hmm. from black bodies, right, um, was to dehumanize them, right? And so, um, so we have a long, this is the history of our country. This is the birth of our nation, right? And so race is a social construct. It's the meaning that's attached to race, which is what's so important. The advantages, the disadvantages, the access, the lack of access. That's the conversation. So to answer your question, am I hopeful? Um, You know, I, I listen to a lot of interviews about race, and invariably the interviewer will ask, you know, are you hopeful? And... And I think it's an important question to ask. And I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't think there was hope. And at the same time, there needs to be... There, the capacity for white people to engage past the headlines, as you named, is critical. And the capacity to stay in this conversation, even when it feels really pretty crappy 
for white people is essential. And that is the opportunity. Right? The ebbs and the flows happen when folks are like, and I've heard this being interviewed, uh, some white people being interviewed, like, I'm tired of talking about race. And I'm thinking, how long have you been talking about race? Since May? Right? That's not even a year. And you're tired as a white person talking about race? Where a person of color has to live, is living race every day, all day, and un- feeling the effects of race in our country? And you're tired after nine months? See what I'm saying? I do. And so it's like, no, you have to, you have to feel those feelings, you know. And yes, I mean, white fragility was coined by Robin from white progressive spaces. I mean, she coined that term because of her work in mostly progressive white spaces and white folks' in, in their incapacity or lack of capacity to engage without all of the. The responses, you know, the tears, the, you know, the guilt, the getting up and walking away, the, all of the, you know, and fragility, not in weakness. She's very clear. It's not about weakness. It's, I don't like this conversation. I don't like how it's making me feel. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do to shut it down. And so the, 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 the term, the term was coined because of her experience of white people not wanting to sustain this really uncomfortable conversation because they've never really had to. I'm reminded, I just saw the movie the other night that's coming out with Jodie Foster about the um, person in Guantanamo Mm. and the lawyer represented the rights of this individual. And he says, because she wants him to put on paper what what happened to him. And he says to her, you know, like, you're going to leave here you want me to set this place on fire, but I'm still here. And that's where I see, as a white person, I can end the conversation, and what walk am I away. walking into? And walk away. Right, I'm walking Absolutely. back into my comfy couch. That's right. And until that understanding and consciousness, I mean, so let's just, I want to bring back to a point I was trying to make and, and got off a little bit, is the whole process of race in our country is a process of dehumanizing. Right? So it's black bodies, it's children in cages currently. Right? So there's something that happens in white culture that desensitizes you and other white people to what happens to people who don't look like you. And so to me, that is a dehumanizing process, not just for the, the, the extraction of the labor and the children in cages, it's a dehumanizing process for white people. Yes. Where I am no longer feeling that I'm not outraged, that I don't, you know, that I have just desensitized myself to what we're doing in the name of the United States of America. Yeah. So the work, I believe, is about helping white people to connect, reconnect to their own full humanity. And we could say this about gay, lesbian, transgender. We could say this about religion and um, you know, um, anti-Semitism, right? We can say we could all, all of this is a desensitization, and makes me less of a human being, because how could this be happening? This inhumanity to other people be happening? It's also inhumane for me as well, and so there's a interdependence that is not understood. What happens to you and what happens to me 
we're going to feel that there's a connection to it. And I have to begin to move from my individualism, this rugged individualism, right, to the interdependence, the collective. And certainly COVID is teaching us that. Because if you don't wear a mask, right, it affects what happens to me. And so this whole narrative about individual rights and rugged individualism, which is what our country was also built on, versus collective, the interdependence, that we are connected, what happens in our community, is all very becoming very obvious for the first time for many people with COVID, for sure. And how we're in this together, you hear this, right? We're in this together. Because what you do affects what, what happens to me and vice versa. And so there's just a whole re-examination of the, the stories we've been telling ourselves. And these are really important stories. And whether it ebbs and flows, as you say, time will tell. Um, my job is to make sure it doesn't. <laughs> Have you noticed this year uh, an uh, ebb? In of course. Yeah. So Of course. Yeah, you know, I'm getting referrals all across the country. My colleagues are getting referrals all across the country. You know, this field has um, exponentially... Referrals are going up now? Yeah, for for work around race. Oh, yeah, of course. Still? Still. Okay. Um, Now, for how long? And, you know, I know it's... it's, You know, I want to... I have to be optimistic. I just... That's my way of survival is to, to, to believe in the aspiration of the possibility of us becoming better collectively, right? I have to. Um, It is going to ebb and flow. It already has to some degree, but, you know, the headlines aren't stopping. The headlines, it's like I can't turn on the radio or watch something on TV where race is not being mentioned. That is a huge departure. You know, so the naming of race is becoming part of the mainstream where it hadn't before. Well... I like getting the headline highlights in the morning. And last year, even through January, race was a prominent headline. But I've noticed since um, the inauguration of this new administration, it hasn't been the last couple of weeks. Hmm. I haven't noticed that, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised. And it really, I mean, that's, that's really, I feel, the opportunity is to how to keep this in the consciousness of white people in the Bay Area. An experience I had when Trump was elected was I was shocked. I was at a group and I didn't realize he was winning. And I came out of the group around nine at night. And my son had a message left. He said, Trump's winning. I thought he was joking. I called him. He said, no, look. I was shocked. My peers, uh, white, white peers were shocked. What I noticed in the next 48 hours is elderly people of color were not shocked. And I thought, oh, I've been missing. We've been in a little bit of a bubble. A bit, a lot of bit. A little bit of a bubble. I'm being slightly facetious, but it's, yeah, absolutely. And it's time, I think, Trump's election, certainly for me personally, was, you know, um, there is a bubble here. And in this bubble, him winning was never a possibility. Right. And that just shows, again, um, 
I think the challenges. Yeah, that's what opened my eyes. Like, wow, I thought I was pretty woke, but I was fast asleep. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been that upset. I have to say, um, the most challenging conversations around race have been in these white liberal progressive spaces. There really is, because there is this belief. There's a, it's a, a deeper denial around the possibility. Are you open to the possibility that the stories you have been telling yourself needs to be re-examined? That just because we're not the South, and I'll even talk about Southern California, it's just because we're not even Orange County or the Southern California, let alone the Southern region, that race still isn't having a huge impact because all the data outcomes tell us otherwise. You know, we know Marin has the one of the highest inequality gaps, you know, of anywhere. There's a high suicide rate here. Um, you know, this whole notion around essential workers. Now, were you familiar with that term before COVID? Did you hear that often? Yeah. So we have COVID, COVID begins, and all of a sudden this terminology of our essential workers. And it's, I mean, just let's just have this conversation. Who's now all of a sudden essential? They weren't essential pre-COVID, right? And I'm talking now about, you know, all the folks that made sure that we had groceries on the shelves mm-hmm. of our supermarkets and bodegas and corner stores and mini marts, right? All the people that worked to make sure that when we did venture out, there was groceries. Or all the people who delivered, prepared and delivered food during a lockdown, right? To make sure that when we were able to stay at home and what a privilege that was um, afforded us, because that wasn't the case for, for everybody, um, that their life could go on. I could still get my meals. I could still get food. I could still take care of the responsibilities and the, uh, the um, requirements to be at home, right? But where was the essential protection? Where was the essential pay? Where's the essential health insurance? And even now in the Senate, the minimum wage, which have, hasn't been raised in 12 years federally, is likely going to die. So who was essential then? Where is that conversation now to pay them, to raise the minimum wage? Where in some places, I mean, it's ridiculous what it is. Yeah, I heard it's $7. $7, right? So um, you're now labeling me essential for your benefit. But when the time comes to practice what you believe and say you believe, where's the, the, the value? given to what you pay me, right? And so this, you know, essential but expendable. And that's really what, and and look who COVID has, you know, um, affected the most. You know, our black, our brown, indigenous families, right? And so again, this is again how we live race. And so for white people to be so oblivious to the ways in which race, this social construct around skin color determines everything, (laughs) you know, and, you know, as, as young as six months of age, we begin to notice as babies race. And by three years of age, we notice blue eyes, brown eyes, white skin, brown skin, black skin by three years of age. And... Just want to get this thought out before. <laughs> and right when children are noticing race, 
in white families, that's when in places like here in the Bay Area, because we believe or they believe they're colorblind, right? And they believe it's it's aspirational to not see color. White parents aren't talking to their white children about race. So in the absence of the conversation, they're seeing and noticing race. Where do we live? Yeah. Who are our neighbors? Who does mommy and daddy talk to? When does mommy tighten up on her purse? When does she lock the windows? All of this, all of the subtle, not so subtle ways that we live race, our children, white children, are seeing it. And so without the conversation around race from mom and dad, then they're picking up on the hierarchy and the cues and the, they're just replicating the history of race in our country. So helping, which is how we met, because I was doing a seminar for parents, right, in the community, uh, in uh, TAM, Union High School District, is to help parents understand, white parents to understand, you have to engage in conversations about race with your children. And where do you start? I often get that question. You start by talking about race. And you start to, to talk about how being colorblind is not, you know, perhaps that was a thinking. That thinking has now been, you know, clear. It's damaging. It's destructive. Being colorblind is what makes liberal progressive spaces so dangerous. We're in the South. We're clear. Here, the colorblindness is the most dangerous. Yeah. So I know you wanted to... No, it's okay. That, this is, that, there's so much that just came in with what you said. One, I would say to white people, I want to be facetious a bit. I want to say like to whitey, but there's an element. Start, like don't wait for the perfection. I think that's something huge that was spoken of in that parent education evening is it's the continual practice. We're not going to get it all right right now. I'm not getting it right. And I've been living race and conscious of race my whole life, and I'm still. So, you know, absolutely, Greg. This is such an important point. I'm glad you're bringing us to this point, is there's this notion that I'm going to, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I don't say anything. That is destructive. Yeah. Your children need to see you learning and growing just like they are. Right? That you're not this perfect robotic adult, right? That you're going to learn. Because we say to, don't we say to our children, we want our children to be lifelong learners? Yes. Right? And yet, how do I, for me as a mother to my daughter, that was always huge for me in front and center. I wanted Jamelia to see me being a lifelong learner. So how could I ask her to be a lifelong learner when I'm not? And so we say to children, you know, being a lifelong learner, be a lifelong reader, all these things, right? When I'm, so you're not going to get it right. Let your child see you kind of grappling with this as well. Grapple together. Be honest about the racial story you've been told. Share that with your son or daughter, that this is what I was told by my parents or wherever you started to first understand this thing called race as a white person. Be open, vulnerable, share that, and then share what you've since learned and what you want to pass on to your child. 
what you value, what's important. And yes, you're going to make mistakes just out the gate. Just understand that. And you're still committed. Mm. Right? You're still, this is a value in our family. Just like kindness and fairness or whatever else your family values. Being racially conscious is a value. And we, we could be on this journey together. And then the headlines can be part of your curriculum. But also always bring it back. You know, bring it back to race here. Race now. You know, and you, you heard me mention it's really important that there's a BIPOC of Marin Instagram thread for uh, people who are of color, um, who are BIPOC, to share their experiences. Have that conversation with your son or daughter. These are children and young people going to your school with you. Are you un- do you understand that they're having these experiences? You know, what happens, and you can see from their uh, posts just how difficult it is being a person of color in Marin going to school. I mean, it's very, they've made it very clear. You know, the disconsciousness of the staff, of teachers, of parents, of the community, what happens to them just walking, being, living, you know? And so have a conversation about how does that make you feel when you read? Because it is by school, right? So when you read this particular, and they're anonymous, when you read this person talk about the school that you go to, and have you ever witnessed this, and what happens when you do, and how did it make you feel when you read that your schoolmates are experiencing this. Get into the feeling of it, because that's the humanization process. Getting back to being a full human being with a full range of emotions. That race and racism takes away from us and dehumanizes others. Right? And so it's a how to become more human with our children. And in being human, we're going to make mistakes. And what a beautiful lesson that is to our child when they understand, you know, like even mom and dad make mistakes. And that's how we grow. That's how we learn. We know this intellectually, right? Mm -hmm. We read about it. We read the research and the social science. But when it comes to actually embodying it for our children, it's a whole other conversation. And so back to what you were saying is everybody says they they don't want to say the wrong thing or... You know, how are you going to get practice if you don't start? Yeah. You're not going to get. You're not going to build that fluency, that racial literacy. Until you start, you stumble, you learn, you grow, and you keep at it. So, is there anything more you'd like to say or touch on that we haven't? Hmm. Well, let me ask you. Did I? Did I? Um, because I know there was, I saw your mouth trying to create the opening to say things, and I just kept, continued to go because I was afraid I would like forget what I wanted to say. It's, it's middle age for you, but, so it's like if I don't say it now, I might forget. But uh, there was so there was several moments where you wanted to say something. And I just wanted to before I respond, I wanted to. I think what's most important for me as a learner and what I hope my Caucasian peers would hear is be willing to be uncomfortable because in that space I can make mistakes I can be afraid but stay 
We don't always learn from a place of comfort. Right. We learn and grow sometimes from a place of uncomfort or discomfort, and that's really important. Um, and it's not going to feel comfortable. Yeah. Especially if you have not don't have experience talking about race, it's not going to feel comfortable. It's not comfortable in my own family. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so... It's just, it's just going to be, it's just part of where you have to build your capacity to stay in, in this conversation and just keep coming back to it. You know, you create scaffolding and a foundation and you just keep coming back to it with your children, you know. The other thing I'm thinking of for myself, a reality that I grew up with learning American history was that we were a perfect system and that the system got corrupt. But now... I know it was a corrupt system. So that I think is important for me to keep in mind that I'm not, like as I think of the ebb and flow and is there hope, this is a deeply rooted idea and practice that has been over time slowly healed, but it's deeply rooted. So. I shouldn't be discouraged by the ebbs and flows I see because it's not going to happen overnight. You know, the the fact that the people in charge could say, well, okay, they're three-fifths of a human. Or to be a citizen, you have to be white. And that these were all systematically in place by law and it's not just those words, it's the roots underneath that made it okay for those individuals to put that into reality. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it really is the birth of our country, yeah. right? And so, you know, there's just been, you know, racism is perpetuated by uh, denial, right? We just deny the history. I mean, we still teach the whole history of Thanksgiving and you know, Christopher Columbus, this is just recently in our consciousness, the truth, right? And so there's, there's reasons why it's taken us this long, this denial. It has served. I mean, even the capital insurrection, the denial around this is exactly who we are. And we have a long history of this. You know, how many headlines and talking points, this is not who we are. But if you start to really re-examine our history, this is exactly who we are. And they made no bones about it currently. It was clear that they were going there. They knew they were going there. But we didn't expect to see what we saw. Why is that? We had Charlottesville, right? We had Charlottesville, you know, which was a protest from white supremacists. For me, I, I wasn't surprised by what happened. I was surprised by the federal response and preparation to what happened. Well, there is that, for sure. And there's a whole large population that were, are, were really surprised, well, mostly white crazy. people. right? Um, and I think what was full on display, here's, here's what I wanted to say that, um, uh, that I didn't share before, is that you know what we saw on display, those images were so vivid, right? So powerful, so, so vivid. You know, is, that was white fragility. That was white rage. That's Dr. Carol Anderson's work, white rage. That was white denial. And that was white entitlement. 
Because whose vote were they referring to in Stop to Steal? It wasn't white people's votes. It was largely the vote of people of color who changed the trajectory of who was going to be our president and trying to delegitimize the vote of people of color. And that can't be forgotten. It wasn't white people's vote that they were trying to delegitimize, although white people were part of that vote in the urban areas of Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona. Um, but it was the vote of people of color. And so this, this, this display of, well, we voted, we expected Trump to win, he didn't win, and this entitlement of the vote of how it was supposed to go, right, and whose vote we're going to try to discount, discount it was on full display. And so there's a long history of this backlash, this white lash that's been referred to over time of any kind of advancement. You know, after Obama, we got Trump, you know, only because of Obama. You know, after Jim Crow um, or after slavery, we got Jim Crow and, you know, we got uh, the war on drugs after, you know, it was always all of these advancements were always met with this backlash to try to keep back and deny any kind of gradual progress that was being made. And so for me, it's like, I want to see an acceleration of this conversation. I want to see an elevation of this conversation. I have to do a lot of work personally for my own impatience, right? Um, my own uh, anger at the complacency, how quickly this becomes forgotten to keep this at the forefront. And this is what I've devoted my sense of purpose, how I make my living, is to make sure I, my, all of my colleagues doing this work to keep this at the forefront when so many folks would rather have this go away or be fixed. Like everybody wants this quick you know, what do I need to do to make it all go away versus really staying and leaning into just how crappy it feels when you start to see for the first time who we are. Yes, you know, who we are. We are many things and we have never lived up. To the, to the aspiration and values that we say we believe in. And so it's not to have an either or about who we are collectively. It's to see all of it, the amazing things that we are in the United States of America and, and the horrible legacy around race and racism and how it just morphs and shapeshifts into children in cages. <laughs>